We're going to talk today about identity, the identity of a believer. Uh, we're titling the, this series Identity Crisis because I um, really believe that many, many followers of Christ, genuine followers of Christ, don't fully comprehend uh, what happened and the impact of the cross on our lives and what really, truly happens to our actual core nature and identity when we receive Christ. As I was preparing this this morning, um, something came to my mind. Uh, I came to Christ in 1971, and um, I was just almost 21 years old, but came out of a, a, a lot of um, rough living for several years, had a lot of things. Some of the big things just ended immediately, but some of the stuff really hung on. And, and I remember particularly when I was trying to quit smoking cigarettes, and um, how hard that was. And I was standing at Arnie's Golf, where all the guys hung out, and a friend of mine was playing on the pinball machine, and he had a pack of marble, Marlboro cigarettes sitting there. Now, I knew this guy. I knew he would have given me a cigarette if I had asked him, and I was dying for a cigarette. I mean, I, I was just dying for one. And here's what, here's what happened. I remembered someone had, some, a pastor had told me to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, there is no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So none of us can say, you know, this is a one, this is a unique situation I'm facing. Uh, he said, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape so that you can bear it. And so I'm going through this verse in my mind, and that's helping. But then this was the verse that really clinched it for me, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so I'm standing there just meditating on that and thinking, okay, I am new. I am new. And that, that first verse said, I have, I have power and authority to say no to this. And so I'm just going to say no to these desires. And, and I was able to resist that in that case and eventually, you know, broke away completely um, with that habit. Um, if you're a smoker here today, there's no judgment coming with this, okay? Okay, so, but what I was doing there unwittingly was relying upon my identity as a believer in Christ when I'm facing this temptation, relying on my identity in order to resist the temptation itself. And that's really what I want to show you. I want to show you today what it means to have a new identity, and then just briefly at the end, we'll talk about how to exercise that new identity in actually uh, turning away from the things that so often capture our minds and our hearts and our desires, but are outside God's will. And so uh, we're going to look at that this whole thing and, uh, and, and try to understand more deeply what the change that actually takes place. And I want to thank, I want to give a, a shout out to Putty Putman because basically what I'm doing is uh, giving you much of what Putty gave to us in the School of Kingdom Ministry on identity, okay? So um, it's normally if, if a, someone influences a message, you don't normally call their name up, but when... When you went through their notes and you just pretty much are following it, and that's what I'm doing, I need to acknowledge that, okay? <laughs> so, identity is hard to define. Did you know that? 
if you look it up in, in uh, online or look it up in dictionaries, they talk so much about like how you're tagged, like what's your name or, uh, or maybe uh, where you're from, but more than likely it has something to do with the skill sets that you have, what your personality traits are, what your preferences are, what you're good at. And, and they, they try to kind of like mix that all together and say, that is your identity. Uh, but, well, if you ask the average person, who are you, uh, you, you get a variety of answers. Some people would say what they do. You know, I'm a teacher or I'm a carpenter. Well, that's not who you are. That might be what you do. That's your career, but that's not who you are. Other people would refer to a role that they play like, you know, I'm a mother or I'm a husband uh, or, or maybe I'm a coach. I coach my kids' little league team, and that's the thing that gives me life, and that's, that's who I am. But that's, not, that's still what you do, not who you are. And then some people would say this. They would refer to where they're from. They might say, well, I'm just a small-town guy. And that might be the first thing they say about themselves. Or, uh, you know, no, I'm, I'm a city girl. You know, I, I love the lights and the action. But none of these things really get to the heart of what our identity actually is, because identity relates to our origins. It's, it's not just even where we're from, but what are we from? It's not where I'm from, but what am I from? What, what's my origin? Uh, just to illustrate this, let, let's say this. Let's say that you are a, a nature uh, correspondent. You, you write for magazines. And you've arranged an interview with a wolf, okay, a gray wolf, out in the woods and out in the wilderness. And you get to the place of the interview, and, and this is a pretty, pretty nice gray wolf. He has chairs set up for both of you, and he's sitting there. And so you engage him in conversation. And, and you're doing your interview, and the first thing you say is, uh, so, so, Mr. Wolf, who are you? Everyone wants to know who you are. And uh, Mr. Wolf responds by saying, wow, you know, I have, haven't really thought about that, but I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a deer killer. I kill deer and eat them. I eat sheep when I have the chance. I have sharp teeth. I run really fast, and I have really thick fur. And he pauses, and then he says, and I'm part of the pack. Yeah, I've kind of, I've gone up, and I'm, I'm, I'm up high there, high level in the pack. And so you, as the interview." You hear all that and you say, well, all right, tell me more about this pack thing. What's that? Why would you bring that up and what is that? And so the wolf says, well, the pack, uh, I, it's a place I was born. It's where my mother's from, where my dad's from, and uh, where all the, you know, the, the other wolves are, are from. And it's, it's all of us. And so you ask, so why are you all together? Why are you together? What brought you together? And he says, I don't know. I've never really thought about it, but I guess it's because we're all wolves. And so then you're probing deeper and you say, okay, so what does that mean? You went to a college where the mascot were the wolves and you all learned the same things. You all were taught there how to chase down deer. You were all taught there how to sharpen your teeth and how to run fast and all of that. And now the wolf is getting down to the core, some core issues. And he responds to you, and he says, no, no, no. He says, that all came naturally. He says, I would barely more than a whelp the first time I saw a deer, and I jumped up and started to chase, run across. I, he said, I just, 
It was just natural. I had to do that. One of the older wolves caught me and said, no, you're not big enough to do this yet. Let me teach you. So I learned from the other wolves, but I guess it was just in my nature. It just felt natural for me to run down that deer and kill it. So interview over, okay? It's in the wolf's DNA to kill deer. It's in the wolf's core identity, DNA identity, the core of who the wolf is, just comes by, it, it comes naturally. The core, you could call it the core nature that moves him to do what he does. And we also have a core nature. You and I as human beings, we have a core nature that moves us to do the things we do. And the things we do are the result of that nature. They're, they're not what the nature consists of, but they are what flows out of that nature. They're the result of that nature. So it really uh, behooves us to ask the question. So as I said before, it's not where you're from, but what you're from. And so what are we from? And to answer that question, we have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and look at the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1 and verse 26, here's what we read. This is where we're from. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God says two things. He says, let's make man in our image so that they can rule over the earth. And in another place, God says, your commission is fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. And so this idea of image, what does it mean, uh, the image of God? Well, this, these are both putties illustrations, but I think they're so stellar, I, I have to use them. If, you're, if you go to visit the Lincoln Memorial and one of your kids sees you know, Abraham Lincoln up there, that stone uh, feature of him sitting on a big, big seat high up and says, who's that, Daddy? What do you say? You say, oh, that's Abraham Lincoln. But is it really Abraham Lincoln? No, it's an image of Abraham Lincoln. It looks enough like Abraham Lincoln that when you look at it, you say, wow, that's, that's Abraham Lincoln. Another illustration would be the dollar bill. Whose face is on the dollar bill? Who knows? George Washington. Okay, so is his face really on it? I mean, is that really George Washington? If you look at it and you say, who's that? You would say, well, that's George Washington, but not really. It's an image of George Washington that looks enough like George Washington that you would point at that and you would say, George Washington, you've been influenced by George Washington. You, you, I recognize George Washington in you. And so when he says we've been created in the image of God, what he's saying is that we've been created with the components that when, when we're walking in truth, and Adam and Eve were walking in truth at this moment, we, we reflect something of who God is, so that God himself can look and see us and see himself reflected back. You know, there's, there's nothing really more satisfying, I think, as a parent than for someone to say, wow, your kid looks like you. 
I mean, why is that? I don't know, but there's something special. Maybe it's because God likes that. God wants to look to the earth, and he wants to see little image bearers all over the earth. And so the, the, the thing here is uh, we, our, our original identity was to be God's face on the planet, okay? And our original destiny or mission was God to do God's job on the planet. God created the planet, and he wanted us as his representatives to rule over the planet and to oversee the planet. So, I have a joke for you. I haven't told a joke for a while, but uh, there was this guy who was an optimist. He was the ultimate optimist. He always saw everything in positive light. And this poor fellow was on a 20, 20th uh, floor balcony of a building one day with his friends, and he slipped and he fell over the balcony railing. And someone on the 10th floor balcony, as he fell past them, heard him say, so far, so good. <laughs> okay, that's what I want to say right now about this passage and this story. Yeah, so far, so good, huh? <laughs> but we know something else is coming. Because we look around, and you, know, you don't even have to know the Bible. You just look around the world, and you say, man, something happened. What happened? And here's what happened. We see in Genesis 3, 1 through 3, it says, Now the serpent said to the woman. Now, when it says serpent, I, you know, I don't know if that means literal serpent or if it's metaf metaphor or a figure of speech because Satan is deceptive and human beings, uh, and as this is being written, human beings even then would have thought of serpents as being, you know, they're on the ground and they lie in the bushes and they attack you without warning. But nevertheless, this is Satan according to the New Testament. So Satan said to the woman, he said this, and you know the story. God, God has told Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, and he told them, you can eat any fruit in this garden, anything you want except for that tree right in the middle. And the day you eat from that tree, you'll die. So don't do it. So he comes to Eve, and he says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. You've ever, have you ever had someone come to you and say something like this? Hey, I heard that your boss told you this. Did he really tell you that? I can't believe it. And when that person does that, what they're doing is they're ingratiating themselves to you. They're trying to, they're trying to make you think they're on your team, they're on your side. And so he said, did God really say that? And, the, and, and, and further, what he does is, he makes Eve the teacher. And so Eve, the woman, said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And so Eve responds, and she's probably feeling pretty good right now. Okay, I'll correct you, silly serpent. You, miss, you got this all wrong. But she got it wrong, too, because what she says is, don't touch it. And you see, this is religion. Religion is when you take a clear command of God, and you extend beyond that command, and then you apply it to everybody. And so, you know, when the Bible says drunkenness is wrong, you say, okay, drunkenness is wrong. Don't even touch it. Don't even, don't even touch a glass of wine or a bottle of beer. Don't touch it. That's religion. And so she's, she's really the originator of, of religion here because it's rules that are not the rules God gives us.
but she's also, I'm going to say, confused. And so Satan has her at a disadvantage right now because she thinks she just taught Satan something, and she has extended beyond what God actually said. So now Satan really comes strong at her, and he says this. He says, you will certainly not die. This is Genesis 3, 4, and 5. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's saying two things here. First of all, God does not have your best interest at heart. He's holding out on you. He is not good. Don't trust him. Second thing he's saying is, you are not enough as you are. You need something more. But she's already, there, she's already created in the image of God. And so he's, he's lying to her about that. The very thing that she has as a strength, he is telling her it's not true. You, you, you're, not, you're inadequate. You ever faced that yourself? Under spiritual attack? Lies like this come all the time. And so Eve listens to him. And in Genesis 3, 6, here's what happened. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, in other words, it was edible. I don't know how she decided that, but she looked at it. She, maybe she smelled it. Maybe she compared it to all the other fruit in the garden and said, well, this is just like that. Uh, it, it's edible. But then get this. And pleasing to the eye, it was appealing. This is like a day you didn't get to eat all day, and it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and you see a hamburger. You see a, a billboard of a hamburger, a beautiful, juicy hamburger. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, I want that. I want that. And then also she believed Satan's lie that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it also. Now, the New Testament says Eve was deceived. She was. Doesn't mean the man couldn't have been deceived, but it says the man, Adam wasn't deceived. And the only thing I can figure out is he chose Eve over God. He did not want to leave Eve. He chose Eve over God. Here's what, here's what Putty said about it. He said, Eve's sin is profoundly symbolic. She doesn't simply do something with the fruit she wasn't supposed to do. So she doesn't pluck that fruit off and throw it at other trees or sharpen sticks and put it on the end and you know, have a, a fruit fight with Adam. She actually takes the fruit and eats it. She brings within her being the sinful act that she is committing. It enters her, becomes part of her. Sin isn't just something she's done. It becomes something she is. And the result of that was in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. There's an immediate impact. Immediate impact. Something changed inside of them, and they knew it. 
They knew it. They knew that when they took that, that act of disobedience to God, that they had taken sin into themselves, and it impacted their very identity and their nature to the very core of their being. And so they, they, they see this, and, and they're changed because now they are fallen. You see, their righteousness was provisional. It was based upon their obedience. If they had obeyed God, they perhaps God would have confirmed them and righteousness would be what the theologians would say. Some believe that if they had withstood this first temptation, that God would have confirmed their righteousness and they would have lived then in righteousness forever. But their righteousness was provisional. And so now that they've disobeyed, they're no longer innocent. Their nature and their identity are given to rebellion and hiding from God. So what do they do? Well, they, they fashion a covering. They fashion a covering with leaves of the garden. And this tells us that they, they're, they're experiencing guilt. You know, guilt is actual culpability for doing something wrong. And then it's the emotions that, that accompany that culpability. And then they're experiencing shame as well. Shame is not just that I did something wrong. Shame is the, is the, is the belief there's something wrong with me. I'm different than others. I don't want anyone to really see me because if they see me, they'll reject me because I'm, you know, I'm different than others. And so I think they're experiencing both. And, and you don't want to be seen, so you cover up. And, and you try to hide, and they are hiding now from God. One author uh, in, implied that they might have chosen leaves. I don't know what else they could have chosen, but they might have chosen leaves because they thought that if they just covered themselves in leaves and then just stood real still when God came, <laughs> he might just bypass them and think they're trees or something. I don't know if that, that could be or not. But uh, they covered themselves. And you know what? The problem was not external, it was internal. But they, they tried to find an external solution for an internal problem. And, and that's what we've all been doing all along, trying to find external solutions for internal problems. They tried to, uh, to deal with this by covering up. You see, the problem with any human being is not that we commit sins. Our problem is that our very nature and being has become sinful, and we're born that way. Our very nature and being has become sinful. Other places in the Bible, it refers to the heart, and it's using the heart in the same sense of uh, the inner nature or the foundational core nature of who we are. But our very being, our heart, just like the wolf who says, no, 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 I, I didn't have to learn to chase deer. That just came naturally to me. You know, we're born with a nature that says, hide, don't let people see. Now, when they're real, real little, and one of the beauty of little children before they, they grow up very far is that they are just pretty innocent and say really funny things. But they hit a point where it is cover, cover. I want to cover, I want to hide. I don't want you to see who I am. And, and so 
this identity, this fallen nature, this rebellion against God is the problem. And the solution is not external. It is not law. The Old Testament was never intended to give law as the solution to man's problems. It's not law. It's not programs. It's not institutions or medications or religions. And religion, as I would define it, is man coming up with a list of stuff he thinks God would like and trying to win favor with God by doing those things rather than listening to God's voice and God saying, no, you know what? There's nothing you can do to make up for that, but I did something for you to make up for it. And so we see in the book of Hebrews a lot said about this. Um, Actually, you need to understand this. In the Old Testament, there was a way to be forgiven, You can be forgiven for your sins by offering an animal sacrifice. And 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 then you're allowed to still be part of the community and part of the worshiping community because you brought this animal sacrifice and on the basis of that shed blood of the animal, you were forgiven. But it never changed anyone's heart. And the real problem is the heart, not the action. And so in Hebrews 10, one through four, it says this. And Hebrews is a book written primarily to Jewish believers. And so he's trying to convince them that the Old Testament system of worship is ended because Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And so he says in chapter 10, verses one through four, the law, which includes the sacrificial system, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And he's referring to Christ coming death on the cross, resurrection to new life, and all that that means to us. The good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, meaning the sacrifices that were given, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship, to worship God. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. Now, when he says made perfect, the, the idea there is restored to the state of righteousness that God created us with. And he says no offerings in the Old Testament could ever do that. They could not change the heart. And so he goes on in verse, the next verse, next couple of verses. Oh, no, I'm sorry, in chapter 9, next chapter. And he says, this is an illustration for the present time. Just forget that. Uh, I don't don't want to have to go into explaining to you what that illustration was, but indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience. Again, conscience is is being used here to refer to the nature, you know, the, the core nature and identity of who we are. It could never clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of what? New order. So the writer of Hebrews realizes he is living in the time of the new order, and he's trying to convince these Jewish believers in Christ that a new order has come. The old order's gone. There's a new order now. And then in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, the very next two verses, he says, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here. That's the new order is already here. 
He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He, in other words, he went to heaven and before God, and he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, which is what happened in the Old Testament. They went into a physical tabernacle, physical temple. But here Jesus goes to the temple that is in heaven, so to speak. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal salvation. You see, this is saying that while Adam and Eve's righteousness was provisional, the righteousness we receive through Christ is not provisional. I'm going to go into more of that in a moment. But then he goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially, un ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's the Old Testament system. If that's the case, then how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, through the Holy Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will his offering cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, when it says acts that lead to death, I think that's a poor translation. I should have changed that, but it's acts, it, it cleanse our consciences from producing dead works. Consciences that produce dead works are dead consciences. They're spiritually dead. The nature is dead and in rebellion against God. Therefore, it cannot produce any good works. And that's what he's saying here. But then he goes on to say, uh, so that we may live, serve the living God. So what was Adam and Eve's original identity? Their, Adam, their original identity was the image of God. So what he says here is, we, our consciences have been cleansed, meaning my basic core nature has been changed so that I might serve the living God. And what was their primary destiny? It was to serve God, to do God's work on this planet. And so he's, he's referring here to the original commission and the original identity of the believers. And we have that today. We are restored to a new order. Now, another place in the Old Testament, place in the Old Testament that actually predicted this, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, says this. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And this is where heart is the equivalent of nature or identity. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your stony heart, your hard heart from you, and give you a soft heart, a tender heart towards God. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so he's saying here that he's, he's predicting the new order. The new order, when it comes, here's what it's going to be like. We're going to, be, we're going to be changed internally so that we have new hearts, new desires, new inclinations. And you go on, you see in Romans 6, 6 where this is actually uh, carried out. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, so... 
I died when Jesus died. I don't fully comprehend that, but somehow when Jesus died on the cross, he said, I died there with him. What that means is my old person died. My old nature, my sin nature that I was born with died. And then he goes on to say that we should no longer be slaves to sin because that old man, that old nature made me a slave to sin. But now I have a new nature. There's something new that has happened. It's not just forgiven, it is changed. That's crucial. It's not just being forgiven, it is being changed so that we have new hearts that long for God and desire God. And then he goes on to say, the death he died, Jesus, he died to sin once for all. This is Romans 6, 10, and 11. But the life he lives because he was resurrected, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When he says count yourselves, it's... um, Count, the, the, the Greek term here is an accounting term. You know, like accountants, they figure out the numbers and they write them down in a book. And if they intentionally write the wrong numbers down in that book, they get in big trouble. Sometimes they go to jail for that. So he's not saying make, make something up in your mind and pretend that you are dead to sin. No, he's saying here, deal with the fact that when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, your old nature, the old order was ended. Your old nature died, and you received a new nature that is righteous through Christ. And so, you and I, this is part of what we have to do, alive to God. We have to count it. That's what I was doing unwittingly when I just accepted Christ like three months before. And, and fortunately, I had a, a, a guy that encouraged me to root, memorize these verses. That's what I was doing. I was counting it right. I was, I was saying, no, wait a second. I'm a new creation. That's what I was doing. I was just saying, I'm a new creation. And just saying that gave me the strength to say no to the temptation. But you go on and you see further what this means. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says... Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The new order has come. That old nature's dead, and the new nature has come to life. The old's gone, and the new is here. What a powerful, beautiful thing to realize and to remember. Now, we need to get this. I've got to take it a step further. And I've got to show you 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Powerful verse. Here's what it says. God made him who knew no no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became sin for us. He took sin upon himself, into himself, and he paid the penalty for it so that, and then rose from the dead so that you and I could have his righteousness. And so when the, what this is saying is that your new nature is righteous. And to put it another way, it is wrong for a Christian to say, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's not, whoever's saying that understands forgiveness, but they don't understand regeneration. 
They don't understand the new heart, the new life that we get, the new nature that we get. So that just as my nature before was to hide and, and to rebel, now my nature is to follow and to submit and to love and to serve. And he's, that's what he's saying here. We're no longer sinners by nature. Now, here's what happened. And I got this from Putty too. Eve... Well, in Galatians, in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, it's not going to come up on the screen, but I am going to read it to you. How many of you know how to find books in the Bible? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. What I was taught was go eat pork chops. It works unless you're standing in front of a whole bunch of people. (laughs) Here it is. Here it is. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law was that it laid out a standard we could never fulfill because we had fallen natures. So we could never fulfill it. And that was the intent of the law, was to show us that we can't do this on our own. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, one of the terms for the cross was tree. They called it a tree. And some people were actually crucified on stumps of trees. But it, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, here's what happened. Eve reached up into a tree and plucked whatever that fruit was off that tree and she ate it and she ingested sin into herself. And she, she became sinful at the core and every human being born after that, being born to Adam and Eve, was born with a sinful, fallen nature. What Jesus did was he hung on a tree, and he became sin for us so that he could free us and give us new hearts, not just forgiveness, but new hearts. And so Eve pulled sin off the tree and ate it. Jesus, he put sin back on the tree where it belonged. And you and I get new hearts because of that. Now, someone might say... Wow, if, if that, if I still sin, doesn't that make me a sinner? I sin, therefore I am a sinner. Do you have to be a sinner to sin? Do you have to have a sin nature to sin? That's the question. And you know what the answer is? Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature before they sinned. But they entertained the temptations. Eve's passions were inflamed as she saw the fruit and wanted it. You know, the hamburger and, or the big juicy steak that you want to eat and you just can't turn away. Her desires were inflamed even though she was still in a state of innocence and righteousness. And then she chose while in that state of righteousness to eat the fruit. And so in the same way, you and I can be totally righteous. And what righteous means is, is right. We have carpenters in the room. If you build something, you want it to be square and plumb, right? Square and plumb. It's going to be plumb this way, 
and square that way? I don't know. Square and plumb, you want it to be that, meaning it's all the way it's supposed to be. And that's what righteous means. It means the way God created us to be. Don't make that a religious term that is based upon our behavior. It's not. It's based upon Christ's behavior. It's not based upon what you and I do, but what Jesus did. And so we, we, we rest in that, and we get this new nature that now desires God. It's a righteous nature. And so then what, why do I still sin? Well, because although I have a brand new nature which leads me in the right path, leads me towards God, I still have an awful lot of old habit patterns and problems in my brain that I need to correct. And that's why the Bible talks about the renewing of the mind. That's something we're going to look at more next week when Nick Hunter brings the message. But it's just, just like Eve, even though she was in a state of perfect righteousness, she saw this, she was tempted, and she gave into it. You can be in a perfect state of righteousness, and if you're not, if, if our thinking is off, off center, if we're falling into deception, then it's very easy for us to fall into sin then. But that doesn't change your nature. Your nature is still righteous. And that's so important to remember because it means you never really fall out of the grace of God. You're walking in union with him and in, gra- and in his grace always. So just to end right now, I want to say this. If you find yourself facing a temptation, whatever the temptation might be, it might be temptation to be angry with your spouse, it might be temptation to lust or temptation to be angry, temptation to take something that's not yours or to take advantage of someone or any number of things. It might be a temptation just, you know, one more shot of bourbon, you know, Boy, if I one more shot will do it for me, and I will be happy. And there's so many things that fall into that category of what we think will, will fulfill us. When really, even you know, as Satan tempted Eve, telling her she's not enough, that's what he wants to tell us too. You need this and this and this. But when we're falling into a temptation, to apply this all, affirm, count it. Just say out loud or say to yourself at the least, wait a second, I am a new creation in Christ. I have a righteous nature. And do you know what? That's why I'm struggling with this. If I didn't have a righteous nature, I probably wouldn't even struggle with this. But I have a righteous nature. And because of that, I can call upon God. I can, I can invite the Holy Spirit. He's in me. Holy Spirit's in me. And he's empowering me, so I'm just going to say this right now. In Jesus' name, temptation, no. And Satan, if you have any role in this or if you have any part in this, no. I'm saying no right now. And the Bible says if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But that's just a simple step to take, okay? Just just to realize when you're being... Maybe the temptation is to be depressed. And you're convinced that you have good reasons to be depressed, And then you start thinking, wait a second, I am a new creation in Christ. And I did just read the other day about the blessings of God in my life. And so, you know, the psalmist one time, uh, several times the psalmist says to himself, why, O soul, are you cast down? You be lifted up because yet we're we're trusting in God. We're going to see God work. And so talk to yourself. The psalmist did. 
He says to his soul, to his heart, heart, you know, why are you depressed right now? You know, you don't need to be. There's, there's a whole lot of good stuff out there. And God has good stuff for you. And, and you, can begin to, you can begin to walk this out more and more from, from the basis and the foundation of knowing that you have a new nature. All right, would you stand with me, please? Father, I pray that uh, right now, Holy Spirit, you would, for, for those of us who lights went off today, I pray that you would just solidify the truth that, that we received. And don't let the enemy, don't let the enemy confuse us or, uh, or try to snatch it away. I pray protection over that truth. And we just, for, for specifically for those who learned something new today about all of this, just, just say, I'm holding on to that. I'm holding on to that. I'm not going to give that up. I'm going to hold on to that truth. And for all of us, Lord, give us deeper insight into these truths, which could take hours and hours and hours to really delve into. Because we know how great you are, Father. Give us deepening, deeper understanding of what it means to say, I'm a new creation, I have a righteous nature. I have, I have a righteous nature. Help me to see what that means. And speak to me, Holy Spirit, at the moment I need to hear it so that I don't fall into Satan's temptation and deception and confusion. Let, let us walk in a greater sense of who we are so that, yeah, so that we can fulfill your mission for us here on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, prayer teams, come on down, please. And anybody who wants prayer, just make your way down. We'd love to pray for you, okay?